this world today. Every now and then I, I come across these job postings for churches looking for ministers. And it's a rather lengthy job posting about all the roles and responsibilities, all the hats that they want the minister to carry out. And I think to myself, Paul wouldn't even get an interview today. I mean, based on what we're looking for today in religious circles, Paul's resume would be wadded up and thrown in the trash, right? I mean, here's a guy who spent a considerable amount of time in prison, a guy who even himself said that he wasn't an eloquent speaker, a guy that moved around a lot. He wouldn't even get an interview today. But the truth of the matter is, Paul had a hard time being accepted in some religious circles, even in his own day. And that's the context of 2 Corinthians 3. That's what's going on here. It was common in the ancient world to send letters of commendation with a person who was visiting an unfamiliar place. Typically, a friend who knew someone in that particular region would send along a letter of reference, if you will. We see this in Romans chapter 16. We see a letter of commendation sent with Phoebe. This is a letter to show the people that she was from the church in Centria and was visiting the church in Rome, and Paul was introducing her as someone that could be trusted. He was sticking his neck out for her. Even in Acts chapter 9, before Paul goes to Damascus to see if there are Christians to persecute there, we see that he looks for letters of commendation from the synagogues. This was a common practice. You're going to visit some unfamiliar place. You were unfamiliar to the people. And so a letter of commendation or recommendation was sent along with you. In Paul's case, they shouldn't have been necessary. That's the issue. It shouldn't have been necessary for Paul to have a letter of recommendation to follow him. These folks knew Paul. They knew about his conversion. That should have been enough. This is Paul that they're speaking to, the man who led these people to Christ. Why in the world would he need a letter of recommendation? 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. Paul was heavily involved in their turnaround. The fact that they were now washed, that they were justified, that they were sanctified had a lot to do with Paul. Yes, Jesus brought about the conversion, but many of these people would have still been sitting in sin if it weren't for Paul and his efforts. He was the mailman. It was Jesus who did the converting. But Paul should have been accepted as a mailman. Because he did so much for them. And yet these Christians are asking for letters of commendation from Paul. That, that would be like a university athletic program looking for a football coach. And Bill Belichick applies. And he comes in for an interview. And the board says, so what are your credentials? What do you got to offer? Or maybe the, the band looking for a lead singer and Paul McCartney applies. And they say, okay, so what do you got? What have you done in your career? Or maybe it would be like, uh, you know, someone who is uh, looking for some sort of position, uh, maybe a director who is trying to find an actor to star in his uh, action hero movie, and Tom Cruise applies. And the director says, okay, uh, what experience do you have? Some people don't need a recommendation. Some people's work speaks for itself. And certainly that was the case when it came to Paul. These 
people were Paul's story, right? They were his letter of recommendation. The fact that Paul had a conversion story that was really second to none, that should have been enough. But the fact that they could look at themselves and look around them, Paul's basically saying, look in the mirror. You want your letter of commendation, just look in the mirror. Look at yourself and you will see that it's you. The only recommendation that you need is you. Now, I find this rather interesting, don't you? Given all that we know about the Corinthian church, would you really consider them a letter of recommendation for Christianity? I mean, they certainly had their fair share of issues, right? And we can read about them throughout 1 and 2 Corinthians. When you go apply for a job, typically you send a resume. And with that resume, you include references, don't you? A lot of times. Who do you put on your reference list? Well, only the people that are going to talk nice about you, right? If you got fired from the last job, you're not going to put that boss down as a reference. You only want the people who are going to talk good about you on your reference list. And yet Paul puts the Corinthian Christians on the reference list. A church that was messed up in a whole lot of ways. But it just goes to show that even though Paul knew about their, their, their trials and their tribulations that were self-imposed, even though he knew that they had issues, he still considered them to be saints. He still considered them to be the work of God. Even though they had some blotches and some smudges and some smears, they were still a letter of recommendation for Christ, for the church, for the gospel. You know, it was Plato who once said that a good teacher does not write his message in ink that will fade, but he writes it upon individuals. That is what our Lord has done. He has written a message, his message, on the hearts of the Corinthian brethren, and he has written that message on the hearts of all of us. You see, every Christian is an open letter from God. All Christians, whether they prefer it or not, are advertisements for Christianity. We are all walking billboards for Christ and for Christianity. You know, we judge a cabinet maker by the quality of his work. We judge a chef by the quality of his or her food. We judge the church by the kind of men and women that it produces. And that's right. I mean, it should be that way. And so therefore, whether we like it or not, we are a walking billboard for Christianity. And the most powerful testimony for Christianity is committed Christians. Now, unfortunately, the greatest hindrance to Christianity can be Christians as well. But we are Jesus' letter of commendation, and the readers of this letter are everyone. The world, everyone around us. And you know, we talk about reading people. You've heard that phrase before. We say things like, uh, I can't get a read on him or her, or, or that person is hard to read. What do we mean by that? Well, if I understand it correctly, what we're saying is, is that we're looking for some sort of hint or clue, whether through body language or whatever, that gives us some idea as to what the other person is thinking. Some people are very easy to read. We even say that. I can read him like a book. Children are easy to read, most times. Those of you who are parents, you've been sitting in the living room just minding your business and the child comes in and gives you a hug and a kiss, is being overly affectionate and the first thought is, okay, what do you want? Or wives, maybe you, you come home and your husband is vacuuming, he's cleaning the house, he's emptying the dishwasher, he's exhibiting unusual behavior and you check him for a fever and then you say, oh, 
you're wanting to go hunting or fishing or something like that, right? Some people are easy to read. Some people a little harder to read. When it comes to us as Christians, we should be easy to read. People should be able to look at us and determine the message that we are sending out. And what is that message? Well, I think there's a few messages that we all convey as living letters. But one of the first ones, I think, is that we are a warning letter. Maybe you've received one of these. Warning letters are not fun to receive. Maybe you received a letter from the electric company saying, if you don't pay your bill, we're going to cut off your electricity. Maybe you received a warning letter from the boss that if you don't shape up, you're going to be fired. No one likes to get a warning letter, and to be honest with you, probably nobody likes to be a warning letter either. But it's important as living letters for Christ that we are a warning letter. We cannot expect the lost to simply pick up a Bible, start studying it, and then decide they want to get baptized. I know that happens, but very seldom does it happen. Most times, Christians become Christians because of other Christians. And so it is our duty to lovingly warn individuals that there are two states and two destinations, right? There is saved and lost, there is heaven and hell. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 8 and 9, it reads like this. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from your hand. But if you, on your part, warn a wicked man to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, he will die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your life. It was Ezekiel's job to sound the alarm. That's it. It wasn't his job to force conversion. Only God, only Jesus converts people anyway. That wasn't Ezekiel's job. His job was to warn, to sound the alarm. And if he didn't do that, then the blood of those people would be on his hands. However, by sounding the alarm, he was doing his job. He was carrying out his responsibility. That doesn't mean that we have to stand at a busy intersection with a with a sandwich board that reads turn or burn. It just simply means that we lovingly warn people that there are two conditions, saved and lost, and we love you enough to want to convert, for your life to change, for transformation to occur so that you can be in heaven with us. We lovingly warn people that it is appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. But not only are we a warning letter, we're also a thank you note. You know, the story is told of a, of a woman who was convinced that Jesus was going to knock on her door at 3 o'clock in the afternoon one day. And so she got busy cleaning the house and preparing for the royal visit. And it's sure enough, at 3 o'clock precisely, the doorbell rang. And she enthusiastically ran to the door and she opened it up and there stood an angry, bitter, cold-hearted, grotesque-looking individual. And she said, who are you? And he said, what, I'm not what you expected? And she goes, surely you're not the real Jesus. And he said, no, I'm not the real Jesus. I'm the Jesus that people see when they look at you. We've got to be careful what we are presenting to the outside world. If we're always bitter, if we're always angry, then people on the outside are going to say, well, why would I come to church with him? Why would I invest in Christianity? They're worse off than I am. Or at least they're no better than I am. 
So we are a thank you note, not just a warning letter, but a thank you note as well. Let me ask you, are you humbly grateful or are you grumbly hateful? If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, it tells us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you want to know what God's will for your life is? Be thankful. I mean, it's here in black and white. Be thankful. Have an attitude of gratitude. Live with gratitude. And this will go a long way towards influencing others. Because if the outside world determines that we are a joyless, ungrateful blob of discontentment, what's going to attract them? Why would they want to be a part of our fellowship? I'm not saying you have to skip everywhere and whistle blue skies and rainbows. But people should be able to look at us and see the joy of Jesus Christ. Because... When it comes to being a living letter, one message that we should be sending above all others is this. Thank you, thank you, and thank you. I think God expects us also to be an invitation letter. In the book of Revelation, we find an invitation recorded. Chapter 22, verse 17, it says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say come and let the one who is thirsty come let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost i am convinced that the spirit is always inviting the church not so much not always anyway i have no doubt the spirit along with god and jesus have done everything Planning, promising, preparing for us to have salvation. They've done everything short of forcing us against our will to accept the free gift of grace. The bride, I'm not always so sure about. Are we inviting? What is your reaction when someone answers the invitation? Are you joyful? Are you ready to come and greet them and to, to hug their neck? Are you frustrated? Because now you're not going to get out of here on time. It just extended the amount of time you've got to be here. Are you someone that questions their motives? You see, I have no doubt that the Spirit is inviting. It's the bride that I worry about sometimes. When we have an invitation, and I, you know, even you can see it as a preacher, you start giving the invitation. And what is the invitation? Well, it's a time to clean up, right? When the preacher starts giving the invitation, that's the time when you clean up around you and you start getting ready to go, right? No, that's not what the invitation is. You see, we don't only offer an invitation. We are the invitation. Our number one responsibility is to share the gospel. We should always be inviting others to come. Like the Spirit, we say, come. There's a powerful song written by a guy named Keith Green that reads in part, Do you see, do you see, all the people sinking down? Don't you care, don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well fed? Jesus rose from the grave and you can't even get out of bed. Finally, I think that God expects us as living letters to be love letters. 
You know, Jesus said it best in John chapter 13. He said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's our identifying mark. If there's one thing that should identify us above all else, it is love. The love we have for Jesus, the love we have for one another. It is, it is not just a cross we wear around our neck. It's not a Bible that we carry under our arm. It's not a Jesus fish that we put on the back of our car. It is the love that we have for Christ, the love we have for one another. You know, it frustrates me when Christians choose to have a different mark other than love to identify them. There are some Christians, some churches, where their identifying mark is legalism or liberalism or, or premillennialism or the 80-70 theory or theistic evolution. That's what they focus on week in, week out. And I'm saying, meanwhile, the lost are still lost, right? Don't be identified by something other than love. The love of Christ, the love you have for Christ, the love you have for one another. That's paramount, that's most important to who we are and the mission that we are seeking to carry out. Because you're not going to win a soul through your debating skills or through your political prowess or through your knowledge even of Scripture or by simply focusing constantly on certain controversial doctrines. Not that some of those things are unimportant. But listen, folks, what wins people to Christ is typically the love of Christ. When it is shown, when it is realized, even above truth, and that's not, to, that's not to suppress truth by any means. But most people are coming to Christ, not because of truth, first and foremost, but because of the love you have for them. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So you love them so that you can teach them the truth, right? Do you love Jesus? I have no doubt that you do. Do you love the gospel? Again, I have no doubt that you do. Do you love the lost? Well, if we're being honest, maybe that answer is not so definitive sometimes, right? I mean, we get busy. We have other things going on in our lives. We have so many plates that are spinning. We don't always reciprocate the love of Jesus. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Christianity is about more than just rules and boundaries. It's, it's not just emotional. It's living, breathing, and dynamic. And it entails a lot of things, but none of those things matter if love is absent. So let's show the lost the one thing, the missing thing, that will change their existence, which is the love of Christ. And I will say this. As living epistles, we are a reflection of the author least we should be. Remember what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Paul says it right here. We are God's workmanship which means that what we say, what we do says something about us. But not only about us but about our Savior. It says something about our author. As his handiwork, we must make certain that we leave no doubt as to whose we are and whom we serve. What is written on our hearts should be visible to all. And I can never stress this enough. People are reading your life to see if your epistle lives up to the intent of the author. More people are watching your life than listening to my sermons. You can affect people that I can never reach by the way that you live, by the people you come in contact with. I mean, for many people in the world around us, 
you're the only religious book they're ever going to read. Many people are looking to you, and they're the only, you're the only Bible that they will ever open up. You think about the, the impact, the potential impact that you can have. When people look at your life, are they able to clearly and legibly read Christ? Do they see a reflection of the author? There is no denying that people react to our lives. When people read a book, they usually have a reaction, whether good or bad. And when people read your life, they usually have a reaction, either good or bad. We cannot always control the reaction of the reader, but we can control the message that they are reading. And when we present the character of Christ, the reader may not like what he reads, but at least, at least we have accurately represented the author. And those who reject us are not really rejecting us, they're rejecting the author. But those who accept us are not really accepting us, they're, re- they're accepting Christ. And isn't that what it's all about? Isn't that what's most important? And so our challenge is to be a living letter that is hard to ignore. I have uh, about eight pages of notes up here on my iPad. We're on page seven, by the way, so you can take courage. It will be done soon. I have about eight pages of notes here on my iPad. And within these pages are word after word talking about the potential influence that we can have as living letters for Christ. Is it a good sermon? I don't know. I'll let you determine that. But I want you to know I worked hard on it. I took great pains to make sure that what I was presenting this morning was going to be accurate and true to God's Word. Some people, I think, wonder what the preacher does the rest of the week. We only work on Sunday and Wednesday. I I think some assume that something just pops in your head on Saturday and you're ready to preach it on Sunday. But I think most of you understand that in order to preach, you've got, to, you've got to be prepared. And I think even the average audience member can understand when somebody's not prepared, they can see that. And so great pains go into making sure that, that the sermon is well constructed and hopefully the delivery of that sermon shows that. Again, is it a good sermon? I don't know. You guys get to determine that. But my point is that whether it's a good sermon, the best sermon ever preached, whatever, it's very limited in its scope. It's very limited in the amount of people that it can reach. You know, when, when school's in session, we have about 700 folks here on a Sunday morning, not counting the people who, who watch the live stream, who watch the television program. How many that is, we don't always know. But no matter how many it is, in the grand scheme of things, it's a very small number when you compare it to how many people live in Abilene or how many people live in Texas or how many people live in the United States or even the world. It's reaching a very, very small number of people. But all of you probably know of at least 20 people that you can influence or that you are influencing on a daily basis, whether it be family, friends, co-workers, whatever. And if all 700 of us had 20 people that we are striving to reach every day, my math is not real good, but I think that's 14,000. Now, will all 14,000 of those people commit their lives to Christ, become a dedicated disciple and a, and, and a, a church attender every time the doors are open? Probably not. But you see the point, I think, is that we have great potential to reach so many around us, more so than I can through a sermon. And let's say that you only reach one out of those 20 people. 
Isn't that enough? You'd love to reach all 20, but if you can just reach one, isn't that success? More people are reading your life than listening to my sermons. If the church is truly going to grow, if the kingdom is truly going to grow, it's going to take all of us making the effort to influence others by being a living letter who carries out the intent of the author. I read a story the other day about a trial that was set to begin in a very small rural community. And as they went to swear in the first witness, they couldn't find the Bible. This is the same Bible that they had used for many, many years in the swearing-in process. And everybody came, became upset because you got to have a Bible. you got to have that Bible to swear people in. And not just any Bible. They wanted the Bible they'd been using. And so finally, after looking and being frustrated, the judge called the bailiff up to the bench. And he said, go down to the county clerk's office and get Ed. Now understand, Ed was an elder in the church. He was a very dedicated disciple. He was a pillar in the community. Even people who didn't necessarily want anything to do with church loved Ed, and they respected Ed because he was a living, breathing example of what a Christian should be. And so after some time, the bailiff comes back with Ed, and the judge looks at Ed and says, You know, Ed, you're a pillar in this community. You're a godly and righteous man. You have communicated more Bible than a lot of the Bibles in this community. We're going to use you as our Bible today. And with that, the first witness placed his hand on Ed's head, and they swore him in. I want to leave you with this. It's a poem from Paul Gilbert. You are writing a gospel, a chapter each day, by deeds that you do, by words that you say. Men, read what you write, whether faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christians to carry out that gospel. May we as the church family here at Oldham Lane seek to be living letters of recommendation for you. That when people look at our lives, they see a living, breathing example of Jesus Christ. That maybe we can use that influence to draw people in and hopefully for transformation to occur. Help us to be a church after your own heart. Help us, God, to be pleasing to you in all ways. And just thank you for putting us here at this time and this place. May we take full advantage of the opportunity you've given us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now it's time for the invitation. So before you put things away, the Spirit says come. God and Jesus say come. And the bride, us, say come. If we can help you this morning, if you're ready to become a disciple, you want to study the Bible with someone, if you need the prayers and support of this church family, we all say come as we stand and as we sing.